For many things in life, it takes time and effort before you can see meaningful improvement. But luckily for us, eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every meal from Factor is fresh, never frozen, and is chef-crafted and ready to go in just two minutes. There are over 35 different options to choose from every week, and it doesn't just stop at lunch or dinner, they also have a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Truly every meal I've had from Factor has been delicious, but most importantly for me, it's beyond easy with no cooking or prep and especially no cleanup. Plus Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved, so I'm saving money and eating healthier even on the days when I don't feel like cooking. If you'd like to get started today and get after your goals, head to factormeals.com lightspeed50 and use code lightspeed50 to get 50% off. That's code LIGHTSPEED50 at factormeals.com slash LIGHTSPEED50 to get 50% off. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamor of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Lightspeed. Hello there, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Kincaid. The magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams. The issue this month is once again sponsored by our friends at Orbit Books. To learn more about them, visit orbitbooks.net. And don't forget that you can learn more about all of our subscription options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. As for the podcast, the stories on the podcast are produced by Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy award-winning narrator Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Post-production for Lightspeed is in association with Jim Freund. You can check out Skyboat Media's website at skyboatmedia.com. And on to the story. Our next offering for the August issue is The Litigation Master and the Monkey King by Ken Liu. The story is read for you by John Chu. Ken Liu is an author and translator of speculative fiction as well as a lawyer and a programmer. His fiction has appeared in magazines such as the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Asimov's, Analog, Clark's World, Lightspeed, Nature, Apex, Daily SF, Fireside, TRSF, and Strange Horizons and has been reprinted in the prestigious year's Best Science Fiction and the Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year anthology series. He has won the Hugo, Nebula, and World Fantasy Awards. He lives with his family near Boston, Massachusetts. We hope you'll stick around for the author's note included at the end of the story. And why don't we get to that right now? Without further ado, let's make the jump to light speed.
The Litigation Master and the Monkey King, by Ken Liu. The tiny cottage at the edge of Sanli Village, away from the villagers' noisy houses and busy clan shrines, and next to the cool pond filled with lily pads, pink lotus flowers, and playful carp, would have made an ideal romantic summer hideaway for some dissolute poet and his silk-robed mistress from nearby bustling Yangzhou. Indeed, having such a country lodge was the fashion among the literati in Lower Yangtze region in the second decade of the glorious reign of the Qianlong Emperor. Everyone agreed, as they visited each other in their vacation homes and sipped tea, that he was the best emperor of the Qing dynasty, so wise, so vigorous, and so solicitous of his subjects. And as the Qing dynasty, founded by Manchu sages, was without a doubt the best dynasty to ever rule China, the scholars competed to compose poems that best showed their gratitude for having the luck to bear witness to this golden age, gift of the greatest emperor who ever lived. Alas, any scholar interested in this cottage must be disappointed, for it was decrepit. The bamboo grove around it was wild and unkempt, the wooden walls crooked, rotting, and full of holes, the thatching over the roof uneven with older layers peeking out through holes in the newer layers. Not unlike the owner and sole inhabitant of the cottage, actually, Tian Hao Li was in his fifties but looked ten years older. He was gaunt, sallow, his cue as thin as a pig's tail, and his breath often smelled of the cheapest rice wine and even cheaper tea. An accident in his youth had lamed his right leg, but he preferred to shuffle slowly rather than use a cane. His robe was patched all over, though his under-robe still showed through innumerable holes. Unlike most in the village, Tian knew how to read and write, but as far as anyone knew, he never passed any level of the imperial examinations. From time to time, he would write a letter for some family or read an official notice in the tea house in exchange for half a chicken or a bowl of dumplings. But that was not how he really made his living. The morning began like any other. As the sun rose lazily, the fog hanging over the pond dissipated like dissolving ink. Bit by bit, the pink lotus blossoms, the jade-green bamboo stalks, and the golden-yellow cottage roof emerged from the fog. Knock, knock. Tian stirred but did not wake up. The Monkey King was hosting a banquet, and Tian was going to eat his fill. Ever since Tian was a small boy, he had been obsessed with the exploits of the Monkey King, the trickster demon who had 72 transformations and defeated hundreds of monsters, who had shaken the throne of the Jade Emperor with a troop of monkeys. And Monkey liked good food and loved good wine, a must and a good host. Knock, knock. Tian ignored the knocking, he was about to bite in a piece of drunken chicken dipped in four exquisite sauces. You going to answer that? Monkey said. As Tian grew older, Monkey would visit him in his dreams, or if he was awake, speak to him in his head. While others prayed to the goddess of mercy, or the Buddha, Tian enjoyed conversing with Monkey, who he felt was a demon after his own heart. Whoever it is, it can wait, said Tian. I think you have a client said Monkey. Knock, knock, knock. The insistent knocking whisked away Tian's chicken and abruptly ended his dream. The stomach growled and he cursed as he rubbed his eyes. Just a moment! Tian fumbled out of his bed and struggled to put on his robes, muttering to himself all the while. 
Why can't they wait until I've woken up properly and pissed and eaten? These unlettered fools are getting more and more unreasonable. I must demand a whole chicken this time. It was such a nice dream. I'll save some plum wine for you, said Monkey. You better. Tian opened the door. Li Xiaoyi, a woman so timid she apologized even when some rambunctious child ran into her, stood there in a dark green dress, hair pinned up in the manner prescribed for widows. Her fist was lifted and almost smashed into Tian's nose. Aya, Tian said. You owe me the best drunk chicken in Yangzhou. But Li's expression, a combination of desperation and fright, altered his tone. Come on in. He closed the door behind the woman and poured a cup of tea for her. Men and women came to Tian as a last resort, for he helped them when they had nowhere else to turn, when they ran into trouble with the law. The Qianlong emperor might be all-wise and all-seeing, but he still needed the thousands of Yamen courts to actually govern. Presided over by a magistrate, a judge administrator who held the power of life and death over local citizens in his charge, a Yamen court was a mysterious, opaque place full of terror for the average man and woman. Who knew the secrets of the Great Qing Code? Who understood how to plead and prove and defend and argue? When the magistrate spent his evenings at parties hosted by the local gentry, who could predict how a case brought by the poor against the rich would fare? Who could intuit the right clerk to bribe to avoid torture? Who could fathom the correct excuse to give to procure a prison visit? No, one did not go near the Yamen court unless one had no other choice. When you sought justice, you gambled everything. And you needed the help of a man like Tian Hao Li. Calmed by the warmth of the tea, Li Xiaoyi told Tian her story in halting sentences. She had been struggling to feed herself and her two daughters on the produce from a tiny plot of land. To survive a bad harvest, she had mortgaged her land to Jie, a wealthy distant cousin of her dead husband who promised she could redeem her land at any time interest-free. As Li could not read, she had gratefully inked her thumbprint to the contract her cousin handed her. He said it was just to make it official for the tax collector, Li said. Ah, a familiar story, said the Monkey King. Tian sighed and nodded. I paid him back at the beginning of the year, but yesterday Jie came to my house with two bailiffs from the Yamen. He said that my daughters and I had to leave our house immediately because we had not been making payments on the loan. I was shocked, but he took out the contract and said that I had promised to pay him back double the amount loaned in one year, or else the land would become his forever. It's all here in black characters on white paper, he said, and waved the contract in my face. The bailiff said if I don't leave by tomorrow... He'll arrest me and sell me and my daughters to a blue house to satisfy the debt. She clenched her fists. I don't know what to do. Tian refilled her teacup and said, We'll have to go to court and defeat him. Are you sure about this? said the Monkey King. You haven't even seen the contract. You worry about banquets and I'll worry about the law. How? Li asked. Maybe the contract does say what he said. I'm sure it does, but don't worry, I'll think of something. To those who came to Tian for help, he was a song shi, a litigation master. But to the Yamen magistrate and the local gentry, to the men who wielded money and power, 
Tian was a songguan, a litigating hooligan. The scholars who sipped tea and the merchants who caressed their silver tails despised Tian for daring to help the illiterate peasants draft complaints, devise legal strategies, and prepare for testimony and interrogation. After all, according to Confucius, neighbors should not sue neighbors. A conflict was nothing more than a misunderstanding that needed to be harmonized by a learned Confucian gentleman. But men like Tian Haoli dared to make crafty peasants think they could haul their superiors into court and could violate the proper hierarchies of respect. The great Qing Code made it clear that champery, maintenance, baratry, pettifoggery, whatever name you use to describe what Tian did were crimes. But Tian understood the Yamen courts were part of a complex machine, like watermills that dotted the Yangzi River. Complicated machines had patterns, gears, and levers. They could be nudged and pushed to do things, provided you were clever. As much as the scholars and merchants hated Tian, sometimes they also sought his help and paid him handsomely for it too. I can't pay you much, Tian chuckled. The rich pay my fee when they use my services, but hate me for it. In your case, it's payment enough to see this moneyed cousin of yours spoiled. Tian accompanied Li to the Yamen court. Along the way, they passed the town square, where a few soldiers were putting up posters of wanted men. Li glanced at the posters and slowed down. Wait, I think I know. Shush! Tian pulled her along. Are you crazy? Those aren't the magistrates' bailiffs, but real imperial soldiers. How can you possibly recognize a man wanted by the emperor? But I'm sure you're mistaken. If one of them hears you, even the greatest litigation master in China won't be able to help you. You have trouble enough. When it comes to politics, it's best to see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. That's a philosophy a lot of my monkeys used to share," said the Monkey King. But I disagree with it. You would, you perpetual rebel," thought Tian Haoli. "But you can grow a new head when it's cut off—a luxury most of us don't share." Outside the Yamen court, Tian picked up the drumstick and began to beat the drum of justice, petitioning the court to hear his complaint. Half an hour later, an angry magistrate Yi stared at the two people kneeling on the paved stone floor beneath the dais. The widow trembling in fear, and that troublemaker Tian, his back straight with a false look of respect on his face. Magistrate E had hoped to take the day off to enjoy the company of a pretty girl at one of the blue houses, but here he was forced to work. He had a good mind to order the both of them flogged right away, but he had to keep up at least the appearance of being a caring magistrate, lest one of his disloyal underlings make a report to the judicial inspector. What is your complaint? Guileful peasant," asked the magistrate, gritting his teeth. Tian shuffled forward on his knees and kowtowed. "Oh, most honored magistrate," he began. Magistrate Yi wondered how Tian managed to make the phrase sound almost like an insult. Widow Li cries out for justice, justice, justice. And why are you here? I'm Li Shao Yi's cousin. Here to help her speak, for she is distraught over how she has been treated. Magistrate Yi fumed. This Tian Hao Li always claimed to be related to the litigant to justify his presence in court to avoid the charge of being a litigating hooligan. He slammed his hardwood ruler. 
the symbol of his authority against the table. You lie! How many cousins can you possibly have? I lie not. I warn you, if you can't prove this relation in the records of the Lee clan shrine, I'll have you given forty strokes of the cane. Magistrate E was pleased with himself, thinking he had finally come up with a way to best the crafty litigation master. He gave a meaningful look to the bailiff standing to the sides of the court, and they pounded their staffs against the ground rhythmically, emphasizing the threat. But Tian seemed not worried at all. Most sagacious magistrate, it was Confucius who said that within the four seas, all men are brothers. If all men were brothers at the time of Confucius, then it stands to reason that being descended from them, Li Xiaoyi and I are related. With all due respect, surely your honor isn't suggesting that the genealogical records of the Li family are more authoritative than the words of the great sage. Magistrate Yi's face turned red, but he could not think of an answer. Oh, how he wished he could find some excuse to punish the sharp-tongued Song Gun, who always seemed to turn black into white and right into wrong. The emperor needed better laws to deal with men like him. Let's move on. The magistrate took a deep breath to calm himself. What is this injustice she claims? Her cousin Jie showed me the contract yesterday. It's perfectly clear what happened. I'm afraid there's been a mistake, Tian said. I ask that the contract be brought so that it can be examined again. Magistrate Yi sent one of the bailiffs to bring back the wealthy cousin with the contract. Everyone in court, including Widow Li, looked at Tian in puzzlement, unsure what he planned. But Tian simply stroked his beard, appearing to be without a care in the world. You do have a plan, yes, said the Monkey King. Not really, I'm just playing for time. Well, said Monkey, I always like to turn my enemies' weapons against them. Did I tell you about the time I burned Nietzsche with his own fire wheels? Tian dipped his hand inside the robe where he kept his writing kit. The bailiff brought back a confused, sweating Jie, who had been interrupted during a luxurious meal of swallow nest soup. His face was still greasy as he hadn't even gotten a chance to wipe himself. Jie knelt before the magistrate next to Tian and Li and lifted the contract above his head for the bailiff. Show it to Tian, the magistrate ordered. Tian accepted the contract and began to read it. He nodded his head from time to time as though the contract was the most fascinating poetry. The mortgage was structured as a sale with a right of redemption. Though the legalese was long and intricate, the key phrase was only eight characters long, which provided that the widow sold her cousin, the crops above and the field below. Interesting, most interesting, said Tian as he tapped his index finger against the key phrase. He continued to move his head about rhythmically. Magistrate E knew he was being baited, yet he couldn't help but ask, What is so interesting? Oh, great, glorious magistrate, you who reflect the truth like a perfect mirror, you must read the contract yourself. Confused, Magistrate E had the bailiff bring him the contract. After a few moments, his eyes bulged out. Right there, in clear black characters, was the key phrase describing the sale. The crops above, but not the field. Well, the case was clear. The contract didn't say what Jie claimed. All that Jie had a right to were the crops, but not the field itself. 
Magistrate E had no idea how he could have misread the contract the previous day, but his embarrassed fury needed an outlet. The sweaty, greasy-faced Jie was the first thing he laid his eyes on. How dare you lie to me! E shouted, slamming his ruler down on the table. Are you trying to make me look like a fool? Now it was Jie's turn to shake like a leaf in the wind, unable to speak. Oh, now you have nothing to say. You're convicted of obstruction of justice, lying to an imperial official, and attempting to defraud another of her property. I sentence you to a hundred and twenty strokes of the cane and confiscation of half your property. Mercy, mercy! I don't know what happened. The piteous cries of Jie faded as the bailiffs dragged him out of the yamen to jail. Litigation master Tian's face was impassive, but inside he smiled and thanked Monkey. Discreetly, he rubbed the tip of his index finger against his robe to eliminate the remnants of the bit of ink he had scooped up with his fingernail. With one careful tap, he had added a single stroke to a character in the key phrase and altered its meaning entirely. A week later, Tian Hao Li was awakened from another banquet dream with the Monkey King by persistent knocking. He opened the door to find Li Xiaoyi standing there, her pale face drained of blood. What's the matter? Is your cousin again? Master Tian, I need your help. Her voice was barely above a whisper. It's my brother. Is it a gambling debt? A fight with a rich man? Did he make a bad deal? Was he? Please, you have to come with me. Tian Hao Li was going to say no because a clever Song Shi never got involved in cases he didn't understand. A quick way to end a career, but the look on Li's face softened his resolve. All right, lead the way. Tian made sure there was no one watching before he slipped into Li Xiaoyi's hut. Though he didn't have much of a reputation to worry about, Xiaoyi didn't need the village gossips wagging their tongues. Inside, a long crimson streak could be seen across the packed earth floor, leading from the doorway to the bed against the far wall. A man lay asleep on the bed, bloody bandages around his legs and left shoulder. Xiaoyi's two children, both girls, huddled in a shadowy corner of their hut, their mistrustful eyes peeking out at Tian. One glance at the man's face told Tian all he needed to know. It was the same face on those posters the soldiers were putting up. Tian Hao Li sighed, "Xiaoyi, what kind of trouble have you brought me now?" Gently, Xiaoyi shook her brother Xiao Jing awake. He became alert almost immediately. A man used to light sleep and danger on the road. Xiaoyi tells me that you can help me," the man said, gazing at Tian intently. Tian rubbed his chin as he appraised Xiao Jing. I don't know. I can pay. Xiao Qing struggled to turn on the bed and lifted a corner of a cloth bundle. Tian could see the glint of silver underneath. I make no promises. Not every disease has a cure, and not every fugitive can find a loophole. It depends on who's after you and why. Tian walked closer and bent down to examine the promised payment, but the tattoos on Xiao Qing's scarred face. Signs he was a convicted criminal caught his attention. You were sentenced to exile. Yes, ten years ago, right after Xiaoyi's marriage. If you have enough money, there are doctors who can do something about those tattoos, though you won't look very handsome afterwards. 
I'm not very worried about looks right now. What was it for? Xiao Qing laughed and nodded at the table next to the window, upon which a thin book lay open. The wind fluttered its pages. If you're as good as my sister says, you can probably figure it out. Tian glanced at the book, then back at Xiao Jing. You were exiled to the border near Vietnam, Tian said to himself as he deciphered the tattoos. Eleven years ago. The breeze fluttering the pages. Ah, you must have been a servant of Xu Jing, the Hanling Academy scholar. Eleven years ago, during the reign of the Yongzhen Emperor, someone had whispered in the Emperor's ear that the great scholar Xu Jing was plotting rebellion against the Manchu rulers. But when the Imperial Guards seized Xu's house and ransacked it, they could find nothing incriminating. However, the Emperor could never be wrong, so his legal advisors had to devise a way to convict Xu. Their solution was to point at one of Xu's seemingly innocuous lyric poems. Breeze, you do not know how to read, so why do you mess with my book? The first character in the word for Breeze, Qing, was the same as the name of the dynasty. The clever legalists serving the emperor, and Tian had a begrudging professional admiration for their skill, construed it as a treasonous composition mocking the Manchu rulers as uncultured and illiterate. Xu and his family were sentenced to death, his servants exiled. Xu's crime was great, but it has been more than ten years. Tian paced besides the bed. If you simply broke the terms of your exile, it might not be too difficult to bribe the right officials and commanders to look the other way. The men after me cannot be bribed. Oh? Tian looked at the bandaged wounds covering the men's body. You mean the blood drops? Xiao Qing nodded. The blood drops were the emperor's eyes and talons. They moved through the dark alleys of cities like ghosts and melted into the streaming caravans on the roads and canals, hunting for signs of treason. They were the reason that tea houses posted signs for patrons to avoid talk of politics, and neighbors looked around and whispered when they complained about taxes. They listened, watched, and sometimes came to people's doors in the middle of the night, and those they visited were never seen again. Tian waved his arms impatiently. You and Xiao Yi are wasting my time. If the blood drops are after you, I can do nothing. Not if I want to keep my head attached to my neck. Tian headed for the door of the hut. I'm not asking you to save me, said Xiao Jing. Tian paused. Eleven years ago, when they came to arrest Master Xu, he gave me a book and told me it was more important than his life, than his family. I kept the book hidden and took it into exile with me. A month ago, two men came to my house, asking me to turn over everything I had from my dead master. Their accents told me they were from Beijing, and I saw in their eyes the cold stare of the Emperor's falcons. I let them in and told them to look around, but while they were distracted with my chest and drawers, I escaped with the book. I have been on the run ever since, and a few times they almost caught me, leaving me with these wounds. The book thereafter is over there on the table. That's what I want you to save. Tian hesitated by the door. He was used to bribing Yamen clerks and prison guards and debating Magistrate Yi. 
He liked playing games with words and drinking cheap wine and bitter tea. What business did a lowly Song Kun have with the emperor and the intrigue of the court? I was once happy on Fruit and Flower Mountain, spending all day in play with my fellow monkeys, said the Monkey King. Sometimes I wish I hadn't been so curious about what lay in the wider world. But Tian was curious, and he walked over to the table and picked up the book. An account of ten days at Yangzhou, it said, by Wang Shouchu. A hundred years earlier, in 1645, after claiming the Ming Chinese capital of Beijing, the Manchu army was intent on completing its conquest of China. Prince Dodo and his forces came to Yangzhou, a wealthy city of salt merchants and painted pavilions, at the meeting point of the Yangtze River and the Grand Canal. The Chinese commander, Grand Secretary Shi Kefa, vowed to resist to the utmost. He rallied the city's residents to reinforce the walls and tried to unite the remaining Ming warlords and militias. His efforts came to naught on May 20, 1645, when the Manchu forces broke through the city walls after a seven-day siege. Shi Kefa was executed after refusing to surrender. To punish the residents of Yangzhou and to teach the rest of China a lesson about the price of resisting the Manchu army, Prince Dodo gave the order to slaughter the entire population of the city. One of the residents, Wang Shouchu, survived by moving from hiding place to hiding place and bribing the soldiers with whatever he had. He also recorded what he saw. One Manchu soldier with a sword was in the lead. Another with a lance was in the back. And a third roamed the middle to prevent the captives from escaping. The three of them herded dozens of captives like dogs and sheep. If any captive walked too slow, they would beat him immediately, or else kill him on the spot. The women were strung together with ropes, like a strand of pearls. They stumbled as they walked through the mud, and filth covered their bodies and clothes. Babies were everywhere on the ground. And as horses and people trampled over them, their brains and organs mixed into the earth, and the howling of the dying filled the air. Every gutter or pond we passed was filled with corpses, their arms and legs entangled. The blood mixing with the green water turned into a painter's palette. So many bodies filled the canal that it turned into flat ground. The mass massacre, raping, pillaging, and burning of the city lasted six days. On the second day of the lunar month, the new government ordered all the temples to cremate the bodies. The temples had sheltered many women, though many had also died from hunger and fright. The final records of the cremations included hundreds of thousands of bodies, though this figure does not include all those who had committed suicide by jumping into wells or canals or through self-immolation and hanging to avoid a worse fate. On the fourth day of the lunar month, the weather finally turned sunny. The bodies piled by the roadside, having been soaked in rainwater, had inflated, and the skin on them was a bluish black and stretched taut like the surface of a drum. The flesh inside rotted, and the stench was overwhelming. As the sun baked the bodies, the smell grew worse. Everywhere in Yangzhou, the survivors were cremating bodies. The smoke permeated inside all the houses and formed a miasma. The smell of rotting bodies could be detected a hundred li away. Tian's hands trembled as he turned over the last page. Now you see why the blood drops are after me," said Xiao Jing, his voice weary. "The Manchus have insisted that the Yangzhou massacre is a myth, 
and anyone speaking of it is guilty of treason. But here is an eyewitness account that will reveal their throne was built on a foundation of blood and skulls. Tian closed his eyes and thought about Yangzhou, with its tea houses full of indolent scholars arguing with singing girls about rhyme schemes, with its palatial mansions full of richly robed merchants celebrating another good trading season, with its hundreds of thousands of inhabitants happily praying for the Manchu emperor's health. Did they know that each day as they went to the markets and laughed and sang and praised this golden age they lived in, they were treading on the bones of the dead? They were mocking the dying cries of the departed? That they were denying the memory of ghosts? He himself had not even believed the stories whispered in his childhood about Yang Zhou's past, and he was quite sure most young men in Yang Zhou now have never even heard of them. Now that he knew the truth, could he allow the ghosts to continue to be silenced? But then he also thought about the special prisons the blood drops maintained, the devious tortures designed to prolong the journey from life to death, the ways the Manchu emperors always got what they wanted in the end. The emperor's noble banners had succeeded in forcing all the Chinese to shave their heads and wear cues to show submission to the Manchus, and to abandon their hanfu for Manchu clothing on the pain of death. They had cut the Chinese off from their past and made them a people adrift without the anchors of their memories. They were more powerful than the Jade Emperor and 10,000 heavenly soldiers. It would be so easy for them to erase this book, to erase him, a lonely Song Kun, from the world, like a momentary ripple across a placid pond. Let others have their daring deeds. He was a survivor. I'm sorry, Tian said to Xiao Jing his voice low and hoarse. I can't help you. Tian Hao Li sat down at his table to eat his bowl of noodles. He had flavored it with fresh lotus seeds and bamboo shoots, and the fragrance was usually refreshing, perfect for a late lunch. The monkey king appeared in the seat opposite him, fierce eyes, wide mouth, a purple cape that declared him to be the sage equal to heaven, rebel against the jade emperor. This didn't happen often. Usually, Monkey spoke to Tian only in his mind. You think you're not a hero, the Monkey King said. That's right, replied Tian. He tried to keep the defensiveness out of his voice. I'm just an ordinary man making a living by scrounging for crumbs in the crack of the law, happy to have enough to eat and a few coppers left to drink. I just want to live. I'm not a hero either, the Monkey King said. I just did my job when needed. Ha, said Tian. I know what you're trying to do, but it isn't going to work. Your job was to protect the holiest of monks on a perilous journey, and your qualifications consisted of peerless strength and boundless magic. You could call on the strength of the Buddha and Guan Ying, the goddess of mercy, whenever you needed to. Don't compare yourself to me. Fine. Do you know of any heroes? Tian slurped some noodles and pondered the question. What he had read that morning was fresh in his mind. I guess Grand Secretary Shi Kefa was a hero. How? He promised the people of Yangzhou that as long as he lived, he would not let harm come to them. And yet, when the city fell, he tried to escape on his own. He seems to be more of a coward than a hero. Tian put down his bowl. That's not fair. 
He held the city when he had no reinforcements or aid. He pacified the warlords harassing the people in Yangzhou and rallied them to their defense. In the end, despite a moment of weakness, he willingly gave his life for the city. And you can't ask for more than that. The Monkey King snorted contemptuously. Of course you can. He should have seen that fighting was futile. If he hadn't resisted the Manchu invaders and instead surrendered the city, maybe not so many would have died. If he hadn't refused to bow down to the Manchus, maybe he wouldn't have been killed. The Monkey King smirked. Maybe he wasn't very smart and didn't know how to survive. Blood rushed to Tian's face. He stood up and pointed a finger at the Monkey King. Don't you talk about him that way. Who's to say had he surrendered, the Manchus wouldn't have slaughtered the city anyway? You think lying down before a conquering army bent on rape and pillage is the right thing to do? To turn your argument around, the heavy resistance in Yangzhou slowed the Manchu army and might have allowed many people to escape to safety in the south, and the city's defiance might have made the Manchus willing to give better terms to those who did surrender later. Secretary Shi was a real hero. The Monkey King laughed. Listen to you, arguing like you were a magistrate Yi's Yamen. You're awfully worked up about a man dead for a hundred years. I won't let you denigrate his memory that way, even if you're the sage equal to heaven. The Monkey King's face turned serious. You speak of memory. What do you think of Wang Xiuqu, who wrote the book you read? He was just an ordinary man like me, surviving by bribes and hiding from danger. Yet he recorded what he saw so that a hundred years later, the men and women who died in those ten days can be remembered. Writing that book was a brave thing to do. Look at how the Manchus are hunting down someone today just for reading it. I think he was a hero, too. After a moment, Tian nodded. I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. There are no heroes, Tian Hao Li. Grand Secretary Shi was both courageous and cowardly, capable and foolish. Wang Xiuqu was both an opportunistic survivor and a man of greatness of spirit. I'm mostly selfish and vain, but sometimes even I surprise myself. We're all just ordinary men. Well, I'm an ordinary demon, faced with extraordinary choices. In those moments, sometimes heroic ideals demand we become their avatars. Tian sat down and closed his eyes. I'm just a frightened old man, monkey. I don't know what to do. Sure you do. You just have to accept it. Why me? What if I don't want to? The Monkey King's face turned somber, and his voice grew faint. Those men and women of Yangzhou died a hundred years ago, Tian Hao Li, and nothing can be done to change that. But the past lives on in the form of memories, and those in power are always going to want to erase and silence the past, to bury the ghosts. Now that you know about the past, you're no longer an innocent bystander. If you do not act, you are complicit with the emperor and his blood drops in this new act of violence, this deed of erasure. Like Wang Shouchu, you are now a witness. Like him, you must choose what to do. You must decide if, on the day you die, you will regret your choice. The figure of the Monkey King faded away, and Tian was left alone in his hut, remembering. I have written a letter to a friend in Ningbo, said Tian. Bring it with you to the address on the envelope. He's a good surgeon and will erase these tattoos from your face as a favor to me. Thank you, 
said Li Xiaojing. I will destroy the letter as soon as I can, knowing how much danger this brings you. Please accept this payment. He turned to his bundle and retrieved five tails of silver. Tian held up his hand. No, you will need all the money you can get. He handed over a small bundle. It's not much, but it's all I have saved. Li Xiaojing and Li Xiaoyi both looked at the litigation master, not understanding. Tian continued, Xiaoyi and the children can't stay here in Sanli because someone will surely report she harbored a fugitive when the blood drops start asking questions. No, all of you must leave immediately and go to Ningbo, where you will hire a ship to take you to Japan. Since the Manchus have sealed the coast, you will need to pay a great deal to a smuggler. To Japan? So long as that book is with you, there is nowhere in China you will be safe. Of all the states around, only Japan would dare to defy the Manchu Emperor. Only there will you and the book be safe. Xiao Jing and Xiao Yi nodded. You will come with us then. Tian gestured at his lame leg and laughed. Having me along would only slow you down. No, I'll stay here and take my chances. The blood drops will not let you go if they suspect you helped us. Tian smiled. I'll come up with something. I always do. A few days later, when Tian Hao Li was about to sit down and have his lunch, soldiers from the town garrison came to his door. They arrested him without explanation and brought him to the Yamen. Tian saw that Magistrate Yi was not the only one sitting behind the judging table on the dais this time. With him was another official, whose hat indicated he came directly from Beijing. His cold eyes and lean build reminded Tian of a falcon. May my wits defend me again, Tian whispered to the monkey king in his mind. Magistrate Yi slammed his ruler on the table. Deceitful Tian Hao Li, you are hereby accused of aiding the escape of dangerous fugitives and of plotting acts of treason against the great Qing. Confess your crimes immediately so that you may die quickly. Tian nodded as the magistrate finished his speech. Most merciful and far-sighted magistrate, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. You presumptuous fool! Your usual tricks will not work this time. I have ironclad proof that you gave comfort and aid to the traitor Li Xiaojing and read a forbidden treasonous false text. I have indeed read a book recently, but there was nothing treasonous in it. What? It was a book about sheep herding and pearl stringing, plus some discussion about filling ponds and starting fires. The other man behind the table narrowed his eyes, but Tian went on as if he had nothing to hide. It was very technical and very boring. You lie. The veins of Magistrate E's neck seemed about to burst. Most brilliant and perspicacious magistrate, how can you say I lie? Can you tell me the contents of this forbidden book so that I may verify if I've read it? You! You! The magistrate's mouth opened and closed like the lips of a fish. Of course, Magistrate E wouldn't have been told what was in the book. That was the point of it being forbidden. But Tian was also counting on the fact that the man from the blood drops wouldn't be able to say anything either. To accuse Tian of lying about the contents of the book was to admit that the accuser had read the book, and Tian knew that no member of the blood drops would admit to such a crime to the suspicious Manchu emperor. There has been a misunderstanding, said Tian. 
The book I read contained nothing that was false, which means it couldn't possibly be the book that has been banned. Certainly, your honor can see the plain and simple logic. He smiled. Surely he had found the loophole that would allow him to escape. Enough of this charade. The man from the blood drop spoke for the first time. There is no need to bother with the law with traitors like you. On the emperor's authority, I hereby declare you guilty without appeal and sentence you to death. If you do not wish to suffer much longer, immediately confess the whereabouts of the book and the fugitives. Tian felt his legs go rubbery, and for a moment he saw only darkness and heard only an echo of the blood drop's pronouncement. Sentence you to death. I guess I've finally run out of tricks, he thought. You've already made your choice, said the Monkey King. Now you just have to accept it. Besides being great spies and assassins, the blood drops were experts at the art of torture. Tian screamed as they doused his limbs in boiling water. "Tell me a story," Tian said to the Monkey King. "Distract me so that I don't give in. Let me tell you about the time they cooked me in the alchemical furnace of the Jade Emperor," said the Monkey King. "I survived by hiding among the smokes and ashes." And Tian told his torturers a tale about how he had helped Li Xiaojing burn his useless book and saw it turn into smoke and ashes. But he had forgotten where the fire was set. Perhaps the blood drops could search the nearby hills thoroughly. They burned him with iron pokers, heated until they glowed white. Tell me a story! Tian screamed as he breathed in the smell of charred flesh. Let me tell you about the time I fought the Iron Fan Princess in the Fire Mountains," said the Monkey King. "I tricked her by pretending to run away in fear." And Tian told his torturers a tale about how he had told Li Xiaojing to escape to Suzhou, famed for its many alleys and canals, as well as refined lacquer fans. They cut off his fingers one by one. Tell me a story. Tian croaked. He was weak from the loss of blood. Let me tell you about the time they put that magical headband on me," said the Monkey King. "I almost passed out from the pain, but I would not stop cursing." And Tian spat in the faces of his torturers. Tian woke up in a dim cell. It smelled of mildew and shit and piss. Rats squeaked in the corners. He was finally going to be put to death tomorrow, as his torturers had given up. It would be death by a thousand cuts. A skilled executioner could make the victim suffer for hours before taking his final breath. I didn't give in, did I? He asked the Monkey King. I can't remember everything I told them. You told them many tales, none true. Tian thought he should be content. Death would be a release, but he worried he hadn't done enough. What if Li Xiaojing didn't make it to Japan? What if the book was destroyed at sea? If only there were some way to save the book such that it could not be lost. Have I told you about the time I fought Lord Erlang and confused him by transforming my shape? I turned into a sparrow, a fish, a snake, and finally a temple. My mouth was the door, my eyes the windows, my tongue was the statue of the Buddha, and my tail a flagpole. Ha! That was fun. None of Lord Erlang's demons could see through my disguises. I am clever with words," thought Tian. "I am, after all, a Song Guan." The voices of children singing outside the jail cell came to him faintly. 
He struggled and crawled to the wall with the tiny barred windows at the top and called out, Hey, can you hear me? The singing stopped abruptly. After a while, a timid voice said, We're not supposed to talk to condemned criminals. My mother says you're dangerous and crazy. Tian laughed. I am crazy, but I know some good songs. Would you like to learn them? They're about sheep and pearls and all sorts of other fun things. The children conferred among themselves, and one of them said, Why not? A crazy man must have good songs. Tian Haoli mustered up every last bit of his strength and concentration. He thought about the words from the book. The three of them herded dozens of captives like dogs and sheep. If any captive walked too slow, they would beat him immediately or else kill him on the spot. The women were strung together with ropes, like a strand of pearls. He thought about disguises. He thought about the ways tones differed between Mandarin and the local topolect, the way he could make puns and approximations and rhymes and shift the words and transform them until they were no longer recognizable. And he began to sing. The trees of Dem herded dozens of capti like dogs and sheep. If any capti walked too slow, the wood beat immediately. Or else a quill slim on the dot. The why men were strong to gather wits and loops like a strand of pearls. And the children, delighted by this nonsense, picked up the song quickly. They tied him to the pole on the execution platform and stripped him naked. Tian watched the crowd. In the eyes of some, he saw pity. In others, he saw fear. In still others, like Li Xiaoyi's cousin Jie, he saw delight at seeing the hooligan Song Gun meet this fate. But most were expectant. This execution, this horror, was entertainment. One last chance, the blood drop said. If you confess now, we'll slit your throat cleanly. Otherwise, you can enjoy the next few hours. Whispers passed through the crowd. Some tittered. Tian gazed at the bloodlust of some of the men. You have become a slavish people, he thought. You have forgotten the past and become docile captives of the emperor. You have learned to take delight in his barbarity, to believe you live in a golden age, never bothering to look beneath the gilded surface of the empire at its rotten, bloody foundation. You desecrate the very memory of those who died to keep you free. His heart was filled with despair. Have I endured all this and thrown away my life for nothing? Some children in the crowd began to sing. The tree of Dem herded dozens of capti like dogs and sheep. If any capti walked too slow, the wood beat immediately. Or else a quilt limb on the dot. The white men were so strong to gather wits and loops like a strand of pearls. The blood drop's expression did not change. He heard nothing but the nonsense of children. True, this way the children wouldn't be endangered by knowing the song. But Tian also wondered if anyone would ever see through the nonsense. Had he hidden the truth too deep? Still stubborn to the last, eh? 
the blood drop turned to the executioner, who was sharpening his knives on the grindstone. Make it last as long as possible. What have I done, thought Tien. They're laughing at the way I'm dying, the way I've been a fool. I've accomplished nothing except fighting for a hopeless cause. Not at all, said the Monkey King. Li Xiaoqing is safe in Japan, and the children's songs will be passed on until the whole county, the whole province, the whole country fills with their voices. Some day, perhaps not now, perhaps not in another hundred years, but some day the book will come back from Japan where a clever scholar will see through the disguise in your songs as Lord Erlang finally saw through mine. And then the spark of truth will set this country aflame, and the people will awaken from their torpor. You have preserved the memories of the men and women of Yangzhou. The executioner began with a long, slow cut across Tian's thighs, removing chunks of flesh. Tian's scream was like that of an animal's, raw, pitiful, incoherent. Not much of a hero, am I, thought Tian. I wish I were truly brave. You are an ordinary man who was given an extraordinary choice, said the Monkey King. Do you regret your choice? No, thought Tian, and as the pain made him delirious and reason began to desert him, he shook his head firmly. Not at all. You can't ask for more than that, said the Monkey King, and he bowed before Tian Hao Li, not the way you kowtowed to an emperor, but the way you would bow to a great hero. Author's Note for more about the historical profession of Song Shi or Song Gun, please contact the author for an unpublished paper. Some of Tian Hao Li's exploits are based on folk tales about the great litigation master Xie Fangzun, collected by the anthologist Ping Hen in Song Guo Da Zhuang Shi, Great Plaint Masters of China, published in 1922. For more than 250 years, an account of 10 days at Yangzhou was suppressed in China by the Manchu emperors and the Yangzhou Massacre, along with numerous other atrocities during the Manchu Conquest, was forgotten. It was only until the decade before the Revolution of 1911 that copies of the book were brought back from Japan and republished in China. The text played a small but important role in the fall of the Qing and the end of imperial rule in China. I translated the excerpts used in the story. Due to the long suppression, which continues to some degree to this day, the true number of victims who died in Yangzhou may never be known. The story is dedicated to their memory. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the tale. If so, and if you find the time, please go to our website at lightspeedmagazine.com and leave a comment. Just click on Fiction, find this story, and then leave a comment there. Or if you'd like to help spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast, and leave a review or rating there. And if you haven't already subscribed to Lightspeed Magazine, please take a moment to consider it and check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. The stories are produced by Skyboat Road Company, Inc., which is spearheaded by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrator Stefan Rutnicki and in association with Jim Freund. We also hope you'll check out Lightspeed Year One, a collection of audio stories from this podcast's first Hugo-nominated year. Look for it at audible.com. And that's all for now. Thanks for listening. Cheers from all of us at Lightspeed Magazine.
You've probably heard the name Mary, Queen of Scots, and maybe you know the importance of her legacy to the British monarchy. But how much do you know about her life and what she was really like? For instance, did you know that she preferred to have her eggs scrambled or that giving gifts was her love language? In my podcast, Vulgar History, we'll be talking about all that and more during an eight-part miniseries about the fascinating life of Mary, Queen of Scots. Vulgar History is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where we don't shy away from the messy, complicated lives of women from the olden times. Particularly with women in history, it's easier to use broad strokes to portray who they were, and it's like we forget they probably also had messy lives, complicated relationships, and maybe things weren't as black and white as they might seem in a textbook. But... I'm dedicated to sharing the sides of the stories we don't always hear, and each episode is supported by rigorous historical research. Turns out there's really something about Mary Queen of Scots. So be sure to turn into my series about Mary Queen of Scots and check out the other incredible women I've talked about while you're there. You can listen and subscribe to Vulgar History wherever you get your podcasts and learn more at vulgarhistory.com.